The scholar and philosopher Herbert Spencer is actually the person who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. He offered it to express an analogous term in economics to what he saw in Darwin's uh, view of biology, and that is that only the, the strongest economies will survive. The phrase survival of the fittest has sort of fallen out of favor with the scientists, but it's still used in com common conversation and kind of offers us that Darwinian view of life that, that only the strong will prevail, will prevail, the weak will, will certainly be you know, prevailed over by the strong. And you know this is true when you walk out in your yard early in the spring after just a few warm days and you look out there and you see in your lawn all these little yellow flowers that you did not plant but have volunteered to serve on your front yard nonetheless, right? These little dandelions, you don't want them. You didn't ask them to come there and yet they came anyway and they planted themselves right there. And you kind of are faced with two choices. You can live with these little yellow flowers, or you can evict them. But evicting them is not so easy, is it? You know it's not that easy. You go to the hardware store or to the, uh, you know, the, the garden center and you buy all this fertilizer and you come home and you spend a whole Saturday spreading this stuff all over your lawn and, and then maybe it goes and you kind of hope it doesn't feed into your well and that you drink this herbicide or whatever. Or maybe you call the big truck. You guys have the big truck, big tank on the back of it that comes out and sprays that stuff all over your yard and... You're thinking, I know it's not just killing weeds. <laughs> I wonder what else is being killed in the process. You know why those little yellow flowers, why they sort of take over the yard? Because they're strong. They are a robust little weed. They, they know how to, to spread out and, and to take over. They're a lot stronger than your Kentucky bluegrass or your rye or whatever is planted there. And the same thing is true of crabgrass and, I don't know, broadleaf and goldenrod. All these, they, they are they just infest the lawn and take over. I watched this show the other day called After Humans. Have you seen this on Discovery Channel, the After Humans? It's what happens to the world if humans were suddenly removed from the planet. I mean, just like in months, all of a sudden, the, the planet just starts taking over all of our stuff. You know, it, it goes, all, and they had this, what would happen in a city? If you had a large metropolitan area like Cleveland, what would happen if there were no humans? And, and, and the thing is, is that the earth would just start to reclaim all the things that we've built. And I kind of thought, well, this is a little bit speculative. You know, they're kind of, kind of running off here, just making all these ideas. But then they said, you know how we know? I'm like, wow, they like answered my question. No, how did you know? Because it happened in Detroit. The Packard Motor Plant closed about 40 years ago. And it has been completely uninhabited since. It was a massive structure. 47 buildings, over 35 acres, more than 3.5 million square foot under roof in Detroit. Completely left alone. It has become, or has been called rather, Detroit's most spectacular ruin. Windows are gone. Trees are growing up on top of the roofs. I mean, floors are collapsing. It's just, it's a, it's a remarkable thing what has happened to this, uh, this you know, abandoned motor plant. I thought about how good it is to be on the top of the food chain. <laughs> Isn't it nice up here, you know? I mean, it, it, things aren't perfect. 
But um, from our vantage point, it's a pretty good place to be. We can control almost anything from the top of the food chain. We can make stuff. We have opposable thumbs. And we're not afraid to use them. We can even do a thumb wrestling. I don't know if you've ever done that. We know how to make... We can make airplanes that will fly 35,000 feet in the air. Do you ever think about that when you're getting on a plane that you're like seven miles up in the sky? You know, that was probably made on a Friday afternoon. No, I'm not. But you know, you're way up there. Anybody traveling soon? I'm sorry, Carol. You. Or we can make rocket ships that will go to the moon or even beyond that. You know, they can go way out and they just keep traveling. We can make bridges and buildings, all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's really almost no limit to our creative abilities, is it? And I like this position. I like being up here on the top of the food chain. I, I think about the life of my dog. I could change places with her. I mean, Lucy's got it made. She doesn't work for her food. Somebody puts it out in front of her every day. You know, her whole life is spent doing one of three things. She's either sleeping or playing or chasing squirrels. I mean, that's it. You know, it's a whole day's worth of work. But I wouldn't change places with her. And neither would you. You like where you are. You like being on on top. It's good to be king, isn't it? Yes, it is. And as I looked at the gospel passage today, the passage just before this, we heard a story about John the Baptist. He's in prison. And Jesus makes this quote about John the Baptist. He says, you know, of all the people born of women, none was greater than John the Baptist. If you looked at the, at the, the pinnacle or the top of the food chain, Jesus says, and if you looked at the very top of that top, here's who you'd find. John the Baptist. And then he says something even more cryptic. And yet, the least among the kingdom of God will be greater than him. But then things change. That sounds pretty good. It's all nice, warm, and fuzzy. You're going to be great in the kingdom. But then Jesus does what he almost never does. He gets very agitated and testy. He, um, he begins to go on a rant, really. He, he begins to talk about this generation. I can't believe this generation. I remember when my mother used to say, I can't believe this generation. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's really bad, isn't it? Um, and you remember, and you know, you know how you know when you're getting older? You know, you're already ahead of me, aren't you, on this one? You say things like, I can't believe these kids these days, right? You've done it. I know you have. Yeah, I have it, but I'm thinking about doing it. Anyway, Jesus says, I can't believe this generation. You're a bunch of babies. You say, I... I You know, I'm afraid I looked at the text and I don't remember seeing that part in there. It's there. You should look closer. He says, uh, you know, you, you, you act like children sitting around singing songs to one another. In fact, the greatest prophet who's ever lived came to that generation. And you know what they said? They said, you know what, John, you're a little crazy. You eat bugs. You wear strange clothes. Wait a minute. I think you're homeless. You know, we don't really need to hear from you. Thank you very much. Appreciate all your work. Go find somebody else to preach to. That's what they said when the greatest prophet of all time came. And then when the Lord Jesus himself came, you know what they said to him? You gluttonous drunkard. You drunk pig. That's what they said to Jesus. We really don't need to hear from you. What do you know about holiness anyway? Look at your skanky friends. That's what they say. It's there again in the text. John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Eugene Peterson translates it like this. John came fasting and they called him crazy. I came feasting and they called me a lush. Jesus just lets go on this group of people. He tells them exactly what he thinks. In in fact, so blistering is his rant against these people that they took some of it out in the lectionary. I guess they didn't think it was proper for polite audiences. And so they, they removed it. You notice the text went 16 to 19 and then skipped down and went 25 to 30. Whenever I see that, the first thing that happens in my mind is, oh my goodness, I can't wait to find out what's in verses 20 and 24. I mean, you want to know? You do. Tell me the truth. Here it is. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And if Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? It's rhetorical. No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, it will be more tolerable in that on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Yikes! I mean, these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are good places. They are filled with pious people, religious people. And Jesus is saying to them, you guys are worse than the worst pagans ever. And I know the people were kind of cringing. Why? What's so wrong with him? What have they done so wrong that he's so angry? I'll tell you, when the gospel was preached to them, here's what they said. We don't need none of this. You guys are crazy fanatics. Go preach to someone else. We're at the top of the religious food chain. We don't need you. Move along. I think what Jesus has Jesus most frustrated and angry is the people who need to hear the gospel the most think they don't. As I thought about our ecosystem and I thought about how good it is to be at the top of our food chain, I thought about how foolish it would be to be arrogant on the top of our food chain. Uh, last year, this is the very same time, I went to Nome, Alaska. And so I'm up in Nome, Alaska, which is like this little, like this one mile square city. You know, one mile north, south, one mile east and west. And after that, nothing. I mean nothing. Not like there's like something, you know, not like people live in the country. No. We're talking about wilderness. And so my friend Aiden says to me, hey, let's go out exploring. You know, we'll go out into the tundra. And so I said, sure, let's go. And so we go out into the tundra and we go salmon fishing and we find, you know, musk ox and all this sort of stuff. And we're out. Every time we went out, he took with him a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. <laughs> this guy's a pacifist, you know. When he has a three fifty seven, I'm really worried, you know. And he takes this big giant gun, looks like Dirty Harry, you know. And here I'm a priest. I'm like, I don't get around guns, you know. And he says, No, we have to have this. Do you know why? You know why, don't you? Bears. There are bears out there. We were driving down the road. My, my son Zachary was with me. About a hundred, hundred fifty yards off the road, there's this big giant grizzly bear. You know, he probably weighs 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds. He's like running out on the, on the tundra, eating malls, hunting for food. It's pretty amazing. If I had gotten out of the car at that moment and, you know, and here, here, Barry, come here. You know, uh, that would have been kind of crazy, wouldn't it? If I would have went up to him and tried to pet this bear out in the wild, 
Yeah, I would have found that my place on the top of the food chain would have been a very precarious position to be in, wouldn't it? You know, it might be good to be on top of the food chain, but it's pretty stupid to be arrogant when you're up there. I think the good news that's offered here kind of comes at the end. Jesus says, you know, instead of being so sure of ourselves, perhaps maybe what we ought to do is be a little bit trusting in him. Instead of being so arrogant about the security that we have, perhaps what we ought to do in humility is recognize that we're not so secure. In fact, if we would admit our weakness, admit our need, he says, you know what I'll do? I will come and I will yoke myself to you. You know what a yoke is? It's this thing that kind of goes over the back of a neck of an ox and then it goes over the other one. So it's like one big piece of wood that connects two oxen together so that you can do twice the work. You know, you get two ox power uh, plow instead of a one ox power plow. It's a good thing to have, I suppose, if you're in the ancient world. But here's the thing. When every one ox takes a step, guess what the other one has to do? It has to move with. Right? I, I, I spoke in a little, I, I dropped that um, object, the preposition off. He has to move with him. All right? the, 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 both oxen move together. Jesus says, if you admit your need, if you would not be so arrogant, but rather admit your weakness and say, I need help, he will yoke himself to us. In fact, he'll do most of the work. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see, sometimes, while it's good to be the strongest, at other times, I think there's an advantage in admitting that we are weak. Amen.